a good evening. Uh, do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special show. Uh, we will return it to you as soon as you are grooving. Uh, welcome to station W-E-F-U-N-K, better known as We Funk, or deeper still, the Mothership Connection, home of the extraterrestrial brothers, dealers of funky music, P-Funk, Uncut Funk, The Bomb. Coming to you directly from the mothership. Top of the chocolate Milky Way. 500,000 kilowatts of P-Funk power. So kick back, dig, while we do it to you in your eardrums. For oh, me, I'm known as Lollipop Man. Alias the long-haired sucker. My motto is... Make mine the P-Funk. I'm on my funk uncut. Yeah, make my funk the P-Funk. I want to get funked up. One of the things you have to do is uh, reach out to a lot of these people and get quotes and put them on the back of a book. That'll be a really good thing. And so I did. I got one from Alice Cooper. I got one from uh, Bootsy Collins and Chef Gordon and Sheree Curry from The Runaways. A bunch of people. They were all, uh, all you know, Susie Quattro. But I didn't send a, uh, a manuscript to George because I was afraid, you know, He's not going to be too happy about this. And Angie, my girlfriend, says, you know what? Send him a book anyway. Maybe he won't care. Maybe, you know, he just won't ever speak to you again. But send him a book. See what happens. I send him a book and he, he sent me back a terrific quote. So whatever it is I wrote about him, he either didn't read it or didn't care. And uh, he said, um, first as a booking agent and then as a personal manager for Parliament Funkadelic, during our wildest tours, David Liebert was mission control for the mothership. On this episode of Playtime, David Liebert's memoir, Rock and Roll Warrior, Conversation and Music. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Yeah, <laughs> I dig. Let me put my sunglasses on. That's the law around here. You got to wear your sunglasses so you can feel cool. Gangsta lean. <laughs> Y'all should dig my sunroof top. Well, all right. Hey, I was digging on y'all funk for a while. Sound like it got a three on it, though, to me. You know, I was down south and I heard some funk with some main ingredients like Doobie Brothers, Blue Magic, David Bowie. It was cool. But can you imagine Doobie in your funk? Ho! W-E-F-U-N-K. We funk. Hey, Bill. Hey, David. How are you? Good, man. Let me uh, let me get my thing set up here. No go. worries. And just for your peace of mind... Uh, I just run video for our uh, our interaction during the conversation. There you are, buddy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, I, I, you know, if if there's a, if there's a hair out of place or Bigfoot runs through the back of the room, well, Bigfoot runs through the back of the room. We're posting that. Uh, but other than that, we're <laughs> we'll be uh, we'll be good. To paraphrase a song by the Happenings, all David Liebert wanted was music, music, music. 
The rock and roll landscape is littered with winners and losers, but true warriors are few and far between. After a taste of life in the spotlight with the hit group The Happenings, David Lieber charted a long and legendary course behind the curtain managing and representing such acts as George Clinton, Alice Cooper, Vanilla Fudge, and Parliament Funkadelic, to name only a few. To adequately cover that career and those iconic acts, David, you're, you're going to be my guest here for the next 77 hours, right? Uh, well, I can only do 75 hours. My, my uh, schedule is a bit tight. Noted. Uh, David's <laughs> just published memoir is Rock and Roll Warrior. And like I said, we'll probably shave that 75 hours uh, down to about an hour. Um, David, I got to say, having read every single word of Rock and Roll Warrior, I thought I would begin where every proper conversation with a uh, with a pop icon should begin, Rescue Dogs. All right. Sounds uh, good. And, and by the way, welcome. Uh, it's It's really, really great to have you here. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. But going from uh, from R and B and rock and roll uh, to Rescue Dogs is uh, is kind of like a heavy metal icon opening up a family friendly restaurant in uh, in Arizona. Who would believe? Well, you know, I've been a dog person my entire life. Uh, yeah, always had dogs. As a matter of fact, when I got hired to be Alice Cooper's tour manager, part of the deal was that. Uh, my beagle at the time, Dolly the dog, who by Dolly the way has a chapter in my book, uh -huh. uh, would be uh, uh, taken to the Galicia estate where Alice Cooper and the band and all the roadies and girlfriends and their dogs and cats live. And that the uh, the caretaker, when we went on tour, the caretaker that uh, took care of the animals and grounds that uh, Dolly the dog would be uh, one of those uh, animals that would be under his auspices. That was part of the deal. Otherwise, I couldn't take the job. So I've always been a, a dog person. I've even had my share of cats. Good man. Good man. Um, I, I, so the, the reason I bring that up uh, is for a couple of reasons. Apart, apart from having a house full of rescue animals myself, uh, three cats and a dog, and my sister-in-law runs a, runs a rescue effort in Bosnia, of all places, oh. um, where there's an incredible need. I, I, I was there during the war and uh, and witnessed um, the, the heartbreaking scenes of of former pets, you know, let loose by their owners who couldn't care for them any longer. And that and that Jeez. has just kind of exploded and blossomed mm -hmm. in the years after the war. Uh, so I, I published a, a war memoir a few years back, and I also host a podcast for the Chicago Writers Association, which you will invariably have have a part in 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 this upcoming uh, podcast post in uh, at, at the at the start of the month at, at the first of the year. Ending with dogs is this perfect redemptive value added end ending, and it, it's just the the book is a roller coaster. It begins with your very humble beginnings and roller coasters us through crazy and tumultuous years and then that ending is just perfect so i i'm wondering and and i'll ask this for for myself but i'll also ask this for for our listeners uh at the chicago writers association if you got any any help in writing the book because it's such a perfect poetic ending well thank you uh, that's uh, that's really nice to hear no i i wrote the whole thing myself i uh feel that uh, I wanted it to come from me. I wanted yeah. it to sound 
like me. And I felt that I was able enough to, to write a book as long as I edited it 50 million times. It would be <laughs> what I was doing. I felt it would be more truthful, more honest if it was my own words. I know a lot mm -hmm. of people, a lot of artists and uh, people get someone to write it and they do interviews. I did none of that. I created, I, I devised a procedure, I suppose, where when I decided finally to write the book, I would write things down like events, different things. And, mm -hmm. and then uh, without any uh, regard to uh, chronology or spelling, grammar, punctuation, none of that, I wanted to just have a, a, uh, a stream of consciousness sitting in front of a laptop and I would just bang it out on the mm -hmm. uh, on the keyboard and worry about everything else later. And that seemed to work for me. Yeah. I would go back and I'd fix it and I'd take a look at it, uh, you know, a few days later or a day or two later and see how I could, you know, make it better. And in the end, so I wanted it to be good. I didn't want it to be a uh, tell all uh, salacious kind of, you know, rock and roll uh thing i mean there's a little bit of that in the book because we're talking about rock and roll yeah but i wanted it to be more informative i wanted it to be an easy read i wanted it to be witty i wanted it to be a fun read and yet uh, be able to portray to people for people to get the idea of what it felt like mm -hmm. to be in my shoes to be a fly on the wall with some of these famous people that i was associated with and uh from the reviews, it uh, appears that I accomplished that. So I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased with that. Uh, you did. You did. That can be for, and, and you know, I, I almost used the phrase first time author, but you're really not, you're really not a first time author in as much as writing songs uh, and writing, writing hit songs, which you've done has, has a natural arc, a natural storytelling imbued within it. So, so you're just applying that. I, I had a, uh, I had a great <laughs> argument with a, uh, with a poet friend of mine in, in which I said, poets are just lazy authors. And, <laughs> and, and, and he, and he immediately shot back, but authors just can't get to the point. Uh Good one. Good retort. Good it, was, retort. It, was, it was a great retort. You know, my girlfriend, Angie, reminded me just the other day. She says, you know, the one thing you never mentioned when people, uh, you know, uh, uh, think of you as a first time artist. I actually wrote a screenplay okay. uh, in the 80s. Uh, so when I wrote that screenplay, which was about... Uh, it's called Doing Time, and if, if anyone's read my book, they know that I spent a little bit of time in prison. That's when I wrote that thing, and it was sort of autobiographical about somebody mm -hmm. like be, being in stir. That's when I realized that, uh, you know, if I ever write a book, I could probably be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, so so structurally, there are mistakes or or landmines or or trip ups that you could have made as not a a book writer per se, especially a memoir writer, where there's where there's there there is a there is a technique, there's a style, there's a structure um, that's that's part of that. And boy, you hit you hit on every one of those points in a positive way. Uh, I'll just I'll just sort of detail this the the opening a little bit 
where you provide a great opening vignette backstage at Woodstock 99 with Parliament Funkadelic, which establishes the stresses and and magic of being a road uh, a road manager uh and then and then you you step back from that and you take us through your life the drama peaks with drugs and excess and we are wondering if you're going to get busted and then and then again the ending has this great redemptive settling uh settling finish and those those are masterful strokes well thank you i i uh I, yes, I did write it on my own, but I can't take all the credit. Uh, uh-huh. Two things. Uh, I like to read. So yeah. I, I read a lot of books and I read a lot of uh, biographies and autobiographies. I seem to uh, more so than novels. So uh-huh. I had an idea of structure. Also, I had a fabulous editor who has uh, been a friend of mine for decades, uh, uh, Susie Michelson. Yeah. <clears throat> he, uh, she gave me some uh, a great direction, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we sometimes get into arguments about what should and shouldn't be. And uh, she would win most of the time; I would win <laughs> some of the time. But that process, I really believe, helped me uh, uh, write a, a structurally sound book and uh, mm-hmm. has a certain flow to it. That was one of the things I wanted to achieve in writing that book. I give a lot of credit to Susie Michelson. She was just a, a fabulous editor in that regard. It's it's always important to have eyes on uh, on a work in progress. Um, yeah. But you you know so one of the other one of the other structural elements is you have this ability of stepping back and viewing your life through through a longer lens where you don't get caught in in minutia that's important to you or is part of your story but you're you're kind of seeing the story through the audience's eyes and maybe maybe someone who isn't as invested in you or doesn't know you i I, that's true i think when i wrote it especially when when i was writing about Mm -hmm. specific people if if i was at that point i would uh, try to think about how would they feel about this? Would they agree with this? Would they be offended by this? Uh, is it really true? Should I, you know, I found out that when you write a book, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. Do I really want to throw this person under the bus? Is it yeah. fair? Is it relevant? Mm-hmm. Am I just looking for headline? You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of conscious decisions that have to be made in determining what goes into the book and, and what doesn't. Yeah, legalities and personalities. Well, it's, that. it's it's a blunt and honest book, and and you don't you don't pull any punches. If I threw anybody under the bus in any way, I suppose it would be George Clinton. Although I said a lot of wonderful things about him. I mean, I love George, and he was a big part of my life. But I I decided that I have to talk about some of the things that uh, relate to. Uh, uh, his personality and how mm-hmm. he did business. So there's there's a bit of that in the book, and you know, and it's funny because when I Susie Michelson said one of the things you have to do is uh, reach out to a lot of these people and get quotes. We'll put them on the back of a book. That'll be a really good thing. And so mm-hmm. I did. I got one from Alice Cooper. I got one from 
Bootsy Collins and Chef Gordon and Cherie Curry from the Runaways, a bunch of people. They were all, wow. uh, all you know, Susie Quattro. But I didn't send a, uh, a manuscript to George because I was afraid, you know, he's not going to be too happy about this. And Angie, my girlfriend, says, you know what? Send him a book anyway. Maybe mm-hmm. he won't care. Maybe, you know, he just won't ever speak to you again. But send him a book. See what happens. I sent him a book and he, he sent me back a terrific quote. So whatever it is I wrote about him, he either didn't read it or didn't care. And uh, he said, um, first as a booking agent and then as a personal manager for Parliament Funkadelic, during our wildest tours, David Lieber was mission control for the mothership. There Pretty you nice go. Quote back of my book absolutely you know and and the way i read that was it was it was kind of this off paper negotiation um (laughs) you know it was it was a it was it was two personalities butting heads and then coming to coming to an understanding which is which i think is is an integral part of your job description am i correct in that yeah And I think, I I guess in retrospect, you know, the things that I was wondering how George would feel Mm -hmm. about uh, in the book, I guess when his uh, drug connections were putting a lot of pressure on him, they wanted to be paid. He owed them a lot of money. He had them sign uh, recording session sheets Mm -hmm. and then sent the uh, and then sent the uh, session sheets to the record company accountant and the record company would pay his drug debts. Uh, and there's a couple of things like that. And I, I, I guess he felt, aren't I cool? Look what I did. And uh, so he wasn't mad about it at all, I guess. He, uh, he thought he was cool. And in a way, I guess he was. Drugs play a substantial part in, in the book. The, the reaction to them and, and this sort of myopic view, I suppose, that you couldn't believe that everyone didn't do drugs at, at some point. <laughs> but you, you wrote you wrote a song about a bandmate's run with the law. What, El Paso what, County Jail. Yes, a great, great song. Thank what you. was the reaction to that song? I just spent a little time with that call a crime. I was fooling around with Satan's daughter. was uh i think the happenings were perceived as this syrupy pop group mm-hmm. sort of like the four seasons or uh, you know we started off as basically a, a harmonizing singing group we yeah, evolved yeah. To a band and we um so we didn't have that um 
we didn't have that reputation of being, you know, drugs. And, and, and really, we weren't a very druggy group, but we liked smoking pot. I mean, that was mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we enjoyed. And two of the guys got arrested in El Paso at the airport because they had some residue, little marijuana residue in the in the pipes that they found in their luggage and they got arrested. And uh, I spent the rest of the day finding the best uh, defense lawyer I could find in El Paso. And mm-hmm. they spent the night in jail. And uh, when Bobby got out, the whole thing got dismissed the next day. So yeah. it was a big deal. But uh, I imagine spending the night in, uh, in an El Paso County jail was uh, pretty traumatic for for uh, Bobby Miranda and Tommy Giuliano, the two guys that got caught with uh, and Bobby being my writing partner, uh, he uh, he wrote a few great lines uh, uh-huh. in El Paso County Jail. If you listen, you can hear the men there crying in El Paso County Jail. You know, everyone that goes there has got a story to tell. He came up with those words. I thought that was terrific. You you mentioned heart just a moment ago, and I, so I wanted I wanted to kind of get into into the the soul of of the book your father played violin and learned by ear right he played um well he i think he took lessons when he was a child but he had the ability to play by ear if he was familiar with a song he could simply play Mm -hmm. the melody on a violin and he recognized that i had that uh same ability yeah, like an idiot savant, I guess. I, I could, uh, if I heard a song, I could play it. Wow. And I could play it in any key. Uh-huh. And when I was like five or six years old, and by the time I was seven or eight, I could also play the chords, the corresponding uh, chords to the song. So my uh, dad and I uh, had a routine. Uh, I'd sit by the piano and he, uh, grab his violin and uh, we would we would play songs together my parents being good parents didn't pressure me but they uh, encouraged me that perhaps uh, I should take piano lessons to uh, develop my uh, my skills because they saw this talent in me mm-hmm. I agreed uh, with the stipulation, their stipulation, not mine, that I couldn't quit. If I agreed uh, to the lessons, I couldn't quit until they said so. I agreed to that, and uh, I took classical lessons for eight years until I was. Uh, my father had passed away by then, and mm-hmm. I was big enough to tell my mother, I've had it. I mean, all the other kids are outside playing basketball, stickball, just having a good time. Me? I'm tethered to a keyboard. I'd had enough, but the damage had been done, Bill. I had eight <laughs> years of uh, uh, classical training under my belt, and yeah. my piano teacher had the good sense to also teach me chord theory uh, because he recognized that uh, th- that ability for me mm-hmm. to play by ear, and uh, so that was very, very useful. But a little uh, so, bit, uh, so a little bit later on, you gravitated towards uh, towards the bass. What yeah. what was it about the bass? I had uh, purchased a uh, uh, a bass guitar and a little amp to go with it for I don't know 80, 80 bucks in New York, and I was sort of I was sort of intrigued by it, and 
after messing around with it for a few days, I realized this is the perfect instrument for me because because of my knowledge of chord theory from all those piano lessons mm-hmm. and me being able to play by ear, a bass instrument turned out to be my instrument. It, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if the guitar is playing a chord, you can change that chord with the bass by just changing the bass note. Yeah, You can yeah. a major chord, a minor chord. Uh, you can do all sorts of things. And also it's a percussion instrument. You can the get band, a group yeah. going so you're working with the drummer, you're working with the guitar player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just fell in love with the instrument, and uh, I realized that was, I could, you know, I was a decent keyboard player. I could play, but uh, I could never, ever uh, become the as uh, proficient on keyboards as I was uh, playing bass. I, I luckily was able to find my instrument. It's a great <laughs> instrument. Nice. So I, I asked you about your dad, and uh, and you you talked about your mother as well. But I, I saw this today when I was getting ready for this uh, for our conversation in in the Guardian, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it because I, I think it pertains a lot to to your story. This is from uh, this is from James Tapper. Uh, on December 10th. A huge decline of working class people in the arts reflects fall in wider society. Study shows the proportion of musicians, writers, and artists with working class origins has shrunk by half since the 70s. Uh, analysis of office and national statistics data found that 16.4% of creative workers born between 1953 in 1962 had a working class background, uh, but that had fallen to just 7.9% to those born four decades later. This reflected a similar decline in the in the number of people with working class origins, according to the paper in the journal Psychology by researchers from the University of Edinburgh in Manchester and Sheffield. People whose parents had a working class job accounted for, for about 30 per, uh, 37% of the workforce in 1981, but by 2011, that had fallen to about 21%. I, I'd i love your initial reaction to, to that drop-off, especially coming from a working-class family and going into the Air Force and a lot of the challenges that you faced uh, coming up as a musician. Well, when you say uh, working class percentage dropped off uh, into what? If it wasn't a working class, what was it? It's, uh, let's see, it says here. Um, family, wealthy family. Yeah, wealth, wealth, wealthy upper middle class and wealthy families. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting statistic, isn't it? I, yeah, uh, it is. Um, you know, I've always found that the musicians I've been associated with are a pretty good uh, example of the diversity of, you know, the real population. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure I'm privy to any specific information. But you want you mentioned the Air Force when I was in it. Yeah, that to me was a shock because uh, it made me realize I did live a pretty much sheltered life up until that moment, and I was never subjected to the type of people that I met in the air force. These were, they were from other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. They were basically poor and mm-hmm. uh, uneducated. 
Uh, I had never been subjected to anything like that. It made me realize how inexperienced I was about pretty much life itself. So that was quite an education for me. But I found musicians and artists a very diverse community. They come from all sorts of, uh, all walks of life and all kinds of background, from the poorest of the poor to the you know, wealthiest, educated. And I think it pretty much uh, reflects the way the population really is. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, my experience. Yeah, so... So maybe, maybe there's a there's a there's a reality to to those numbers a little bit. This is a lovely way to spend an evening. Can't think of anyone as lovely as you. Harmonies were always a big part of of your musical language, and and you you seem to have taken to them um, at an early age, and uh, and and they were spot on for you, right? Yes, I um, I was fascinated with uh, harmony from very early in life. Wow. I uh, um, and by the time I was a teenager in Patterson, New Jersey, uh-huh. I had a few friends that also had uh, uh, you know the same interest in, in harmonizing we listened to a lot of doo-wop bands in those days on the radio mm-hmm. uh, the Diablos the Jesters uh, 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 the Paragons those kinds of uh-huh. uh, doo-wop bands and so we used to hang out in the parking lot of this restaurant that we frequented a lot uh, and uh, harmonized in the parking lot chirping we called it let's chirp and uh, we didn't do it for uh, for any specific reason to advance ourselves in the music business. We actually did it because it seemed like a really cool way to meet girls. And, uh, <laughs> but after a while, we said, you know what? We sing as well, if not better, than almost all of these groups that we hear on the radio. Perhaps we should take a more serious look at all of this. That's when I decided to start to hit the streets of Tin Pan Alley, which is a uh, a section in uh, in New York City in uh-huh. Manhattan, where there are several buildings that house music companies, music publishing companies, record right. companies, production companies. I would, uh, uh, when I had some free time, I would walk into these offices. If it, if I walked into the office of a of a uh, music publishing company, I told them I was a songwriter. <laughs> if it was a, a record company, I was in a band. Production company, I was in a singing group. And then one day, this went on for several weeks, I walked into the offices of Bright Tunes Productions, which happened to be a company owned by a band called The Tokens, the another Tokens, yeah. who had a uh, huge hit. <laughs>
to me and uh, Bobby Miranda, my writing partner, and offered us uh, uh, a job writing songs for them. They'd pay us $25 a week, give us a little room with a piano, and uh, that's sort of the genesis of me stepping into the music business. And because they and part of the agreement was that they uh, promised to also produce the happenings. And uh, one of the first things they did was uh, take one of the songs that Bobby and I had written and put it on the Chiffon's albums. The Chiffon's were really hot. They just had two huge records. He's so fine and one fine day. And now mm -hmm. they had another single called the uh, sweet talking guy. And we were on the sweet talking guy album. They put one of our songs on it. This was just. I don't know just. Absolutely amazing to us. And if that weren't enough, uh, there was a band called Jerry and the Pacemakers that yeah. took a liking. Their producer took a liking to a song that uh, one of the few songs that Bobby had written on his own and decided that was going to be their next uh, single, next U.S. Uh, single release. And the significance of that is the producer of Jerry and the Pacemakers was a guy by the an English band. Uh, was a guy by the name of George Martin. And if that name sounds familiar to anybody, it's because George Martin also produced the Beatles, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. But we were kind of in the game. We were starting to be noticed. And and not many people can say that they actually worked on Tin Pan Alley as not a songwriter. Still alive, no. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with uh, with Terry Kirkman from the Association uh, and Colin Blundstone from uh, from the Zombies. Harmonies never came naturally to them. They had to work and work and work at them. What what a what a great gift you were given.
and um, and I I very I studied the whole harmony thing very seriously. Yeah, yeah. I listened to bands like the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons, of course, mm-hmm. but I also paid very close attention to the harmonies of uh, groups like the High Lows, the Four Freshmen, yeah, Lambert Hendricks and Ross, the Double Six of Paris. Um, and I was just fascinated by uh, their sophisticated harmony uh, structures and how they applied it to songs. And I was even fascinated with barbershop quartets and uh, yes. used to go to a local barbershop, barbershop quartet meeting uh, uh, in, uh, in New Jersey there. As a matter of fact, one of our hit records, My Mammy, uh, is very reflective of those barbershop harmonies. Everything seems lovely when you start to roam. But here's what you'll be saying when you Which also, I guess, was uh, my undoing with The Happenings because when The Happenings became popular and we had a lot, you know, we had several hits, the universe was changing in music. All of Mm -hmm. a sudden, FM radio, which had been a mostly unlistened to radio frequency band, had become the major conduit for these new kind of groups, uh, these new bands that uh, were rather AM unfriendly i could see that everything was changing we had to become a band not a singing group and which we did to an extent uh but i simply couldn't get the rest of the guys to really go into it a hundred percent they felt security in continuing to play colleges and nightclubs which is what we were playing all the time and i saw that as a very very definition of obsolescence I wanted to take what we did really well, which is harmonizing and apply those uh, harmony structures to more contemporary themes and and, uh, uh, music. And uh, they wouldn't go along with that. They wanted to continue to do. So that's why I left the happenings. Really, it was a a disagreement over uh, what to do with our ability to harmonize. By the way, this is this is precisely the conversation that I was hoping for uh, a sort of a sort of walk around the book without giving the book away, because we want people to read the book. The book is magnificent. Well, and thank you. I really appreciate it. Are you a musician, Bill? I I am a wannabe musician. Uh, I've got uh, I've got great friends uh, who are who are incredible musicians. I have I have a, a very good working knowledge of music yeah, history. Yeah, you have an incredible understanding of, of the whole thing. I'm yeah. uh, uh, I'm also also finishing up work on the, the 7-year project here of writing a book about the history of light for the artist where I where I talk about the origin of music and talk about the ascension of music through throughout 
history. And right now I'm, I'm finishishing up the Renaissance, Petrarch and Boccaccio and Dante and Giotto. All art, and, and I'm, I'm a visual artist, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, a screenwriter, a, a playwright. All art has follows the same the same structural component. It, it it all relies on a line and composition and emotion and and so and, and storytelling storytelling is at the heart of of everything in in art so this is the conversation that that I wanted to have about talking or talking around the book um and, and and bringing people to it one of the one of the things that I found really beautiful in the book was throughout the book you're presented with these with these curveballs that could have sent you in any number of alternative fates music has always been there for you when your father passed what when i went to bosnia as an artist i should never have gotten half the places that i did but there was always someone a guardian angel who was there at at the precise moment when i needed them your path to the music business seemed to follow that same plan. A am I right on that? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I think a lot of it was simply luck. Yeah. But I also believe you create your own circumstances as well. You create your yeah. own luck um, based on the choices you've made in the past leads yeah. you to the place where you to a crossroads where you make a decision. You can go one way and who knows what would happen, or you can go that other way mm -hmm. and you know what happened because that's the path you took. Yeah. I'm referencing, of course, the couple who took you in after the Air Force to uh, Shep Gordon. Yeah. Shep Gordon, uh, uh, you know, he was my mentor. I would say almost everything I've learned about the music business I learned from Shep Gordon, and, and I learned well enough to actually, after leaving Alice Cooper, have a uh, a fruitful, successful life in the music business after Alice uh, Cooper. I owe I owe pretty much all of that to Shep Gordon, and of course my friend Johnny Padell, Alice Cooper's mm -hmm. agent, who also taught me an awful lot of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, the funny thing is, is uh, Johnny called me one day uh, uh, and said, uh, hey, you know, Alice Cooper is looking for a tour manager. Are you interested? And I knew a bit about Alice Cooper, Johnny being my friend. I, I was pretty sure that Alice Cooper was, was going to be huge. Um, mm -hmm. So I took the job. And I remember that first gig, Bill, it was in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> my first impression was a bunch of insane looking people crazy looking people crawling all over this gear and equipment <laughs> like giant insects. And I thought, Oh my God, I think I made the biggest mistake of my life uh, taking this job. And uh, Shep Gordon said to me, just, you know, just observe, uh -huh. uh, you know, watch what's going on. You'll get the hang of it. And uh, he was right within a few days, it all kind of fell into place. Because there was no manual to learn it. There was no one really telling me what to do. I certainly had no idea what I was supposed to do. But shoot his word, uh, Shep Gordon said, you'll get the hang of it. Uh -huh. and I started to get the hang of it. And, of course, it turned out to be a life-changing uh, job for me. And we end, you know, for a few years there, uh, when I was with Alice Cooper, we were flying all over the world in our big lease 
commercial airliners <laughs> selling out arenas and stadiums everywhere and uh and it turned out to be just life-changing just a great job and one of the great experiences of my life for sure Some, there's some great and funny vignettes in uh, in that series. Uh, one one of which we'll we'll tease here, but not give away is uh, <laughs> is a conversation uh, about flying the plane with Susie Quattro. So we'll we'll just leave that here. But I, I so I, I wanted to read this a little bit because just just to give a, a little taste of, of the book. And you say in the book that there were no manuals on how to be on how to be a road manager. I, I would, I would counter that and say until this book rock, <laughs> rock and roll warrior brother. Uh, but uh, so you, you had a job with uh, as a road manager for rare earth. This gig was great. You say, uh, but then when you, uh, but then you get asked to work with, with Alice Cooper's tour. Uh, you say this, the biggest mistake of my life, Johnny, uh, uh, Johnny strong recommendation, Alice Cooper's manager, Shep Gordon decided to hire me as Alice Cooper's tour manager. There had been an electric chair, a guillotine, and now a gallows on this particular day, the road crew was practicing hanging Alice. So they wouldn't actually kill him in the process. They needed to make sure it would be safe to hang Alice on stage every night to make this seem even more surreal and bizarre. Alice's parents and sister Nikki were visiting from Arizona, watching Alice get hanged over and over again. But just as I was starting to get excited about being tour manager for one of the hottest rock bands in the world, an old problem reared its ugly head, one that could very, uh, very well put an end to my new job before it even got started. So we'll tease it there. You were immediately impressed with Alice Cooper. I was. I, uh, as wild and crazy as all these people looked, they were very, very professional. They were um, very much into their jobs. They took their jobs very seriously. Yeah. And um, I think the main reason was because they had so much admiration and respect for Alice. And Alice relied on so many things going right on stage. There were so many props and effects. Right. Nobody who worked for him wanted to be responsible for anything going wrong. And Alice uh, being on stage here looking like an idiot because something <laughs> didn't work. So they everybody made absolutely sure that nothing ever went wrong because they loved the guy. He's a, he, was, he is a great guy. And uh, yeah. He never took himself seriously. He took what he did seriously, of course. That's how uh, he earned his living, and that's how everybody got paid. So. 
fantasy read. Some folks never talk about it. Some folks crave a blue lady. Some folks know still they doubt it. wanted to be one of the guys and i think i mentioned in the book alice was perfectly happy to hang out with one of the roadies then he would be hanging out with mick jagger he just was that kind of person he was just a real down-to-earth guy and that's one of the other reasons why everybody uh, worked really hard at their jobs because uh, they never wanted to disappoint him and the rest of the band as well the uh, yeah uh, the original band you know we were all in it together. It was just one big family. There was very little separation between band and crew, whatever your job was. Everybody flew on the airplane. Mm-hmm. There were no class distinctions. And uh, everybody liked it that way. We were all in it together. And that was one of the beautiful things about comes- an Alice Cooper tour. And yeah. you, you could, uh, that created a lot of camaraderie and a lot of, uh, good sport shenanigans, and <laughs> you had to be a pretty good sport to be on an Alice Cooper tour. Uh, uh, you had, you had a fairly thick skin uh, to work for <laughs> Alice Cooper. Uh, he was a consummate. He was a consummate businessman, which I think is you know I, I had I had a really wonderful conversation with John Gallagher from from the 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 British uh, metal band Raven. He's known for hitting these these very high notes. And I asked him about how he's able to do that. He's he just turned 68. How he's able to still do that on stage. And I had sort of the same conversation with with Martin Barr, who who still jogs every day and and that's his that's his me time. But John Gallagher said this. He's a teetotaler. His his voice is his business. And he will never do anything to damage that instrument, which flies in the face of of the cliche of everything's a party and 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 of course, you know, rock and roll has a fair a fair example, fair fair numbers of of people who have succumbed to this party too hard and lost. I, I was I was struck by by your your portrayal of Alice as, as a businessman first. You know, he did his share of drinking, uh, that's for yeah. sure. Wasn't uh, wasn't very big on drugs. And uh, and also on these airplanes that we flew, he prohibited pot smoking. If somebody if the authorities came on board the plane and smelt uh, marijuana, yeah. uh, you know, it would uh, it would create problems that could be completely avoided simply by not doing it in the first place on the mm-hmm. plane. Not to mention the fact that Alice didn't smoke pot, and uh, you know, so it wasn't anything that uh, 
that he had to uh, avoid. He didn't do it. I think I mentioned in the book, uh, just before I wrote the book, I was backstage uh, at an Alice Cooper concert. They're always kind enough to invite me to the shows nice. when, the, when it's around me locally. And I walked in, he goes, hey, Liebert, we lived. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a laugh about that. And <laughs> today, uh, I Alice has been uh, completely sober for decades. Yeah. I think what happens to musicians, yeah, they may get involved with uh, uh, drinking and uh, drugs if they if they do get involved. And most do, quite frankly. Yeah. And there comes a point where they either destroy themselves or they, or they come to the realization that they will destroy themselves if it continues. And I think Alice had enough self-preservation, self-preservation to uh, come to that conclusion if I'm going to have a you know, a multi-decade career, I, I can't be doing this kind of thing. People get older, you know, uh, I think every band, if they're able to survive all of that, mm -hmm. are probably pretty clean at this point, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I want to I wanna go here. What did your mom think of the success of the happenings? Because initially, am, am I right in, in seeing that she was a bit dubious? of music being a career yes yeah, she was um maybe she just reasoned that yeah. one of the odds of uh, a band becoming successful mm -hmm. uh, as bad as it is today it was pretty bad then too mm -hmm. if you were in a band what were the odds uh a thousand to one ten thousand to one yeah she thought that uh i was just avoiding responsibility by pursuing this and uh you know, oh, you're going to send me to my grave. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, Mom, if it kills you, I'll give you the best damn funeral <laughs> New Jersey's ever witnessed. You lived your life. Please let me live yeah. mine. And, uh, of course, I had to move out of the house after that. And uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, when she realized that... Yeah. I was really, really working hard and I was very focused. Yeah. She changed and she became my biggest fan and uh, uh, was extremely supportive uh, in every way and uh, took a little, a lot of pride in my, in my success. But yeah, no. at first I just thought uh, this is going to be a disaster. One of those, and, and I'll go back to the guardian article. Uh, it's, it's maybe one of those working class trappings that, that if yeah. you if you don't understand or you don't have 
uh, have the parachute, uh, the financial parachute to catch you when when you don't make it or if you don't make it, that you need something practical to fall back on. I caught that when I switched from uh, from a from a, a science major to an art major in in college. Right. I caught I caught help from my parents. There were all kinds of pressures for me to get, and I worked an air uh, an airline job for for a number of years to to satisfy that practicality. But maybe that's you know that's sort of the proving ground, right? Is is if you can if you can muscle through as a working class person that that idea that you need something practical with a paycheck. Am I making sense on that? Yeah, of course. I think parents are just trying to of course. protect their children. That's what that's all about. Yeah. And uh, I think if you want something badly enough, and obviously I did, I yeah. I had come to the conclusion before my mother said, oh, you're going to send me to my grave. <laughs> I had come to the conclusion that the only thing that was going to make me happy yeah. was going to be a career in music. So it wasn't all that courageous. I really felt that I didn't have much choice. I had to take the shot. If I went down swinging, so be it. I'll worry about what, what my life will be like afterwards. But at least I took the shot. That was my... Uh, Good man. Uh, I just felt that I had to do it because nothing else was going to make me happy. I think I said in the book, you know, one time I was working as the assistant manager of the toy department of yeah. some department store and i had learned i had just learned too much about myself and my desires yeah to allow that to be my lot in life music 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 yeah I have to ask you this before before I let you go. Uh, are you still in contact with Susan Dehim, the the Iranian? Oh, yes. Who is who is and for people who don't know, uh, she has this beautiful haunting voice, um, and she's she was an exile from her her native okay. Iran for her her feminist views. Uh, do you do you still are you still in contact with her? Yes, yes, I am. We're 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 good friends, and uh, I admire her so much. She yeah. uh, uh, she's done some fabulous things, and she's a real performance artist. I mean, oh, she yeah. does much more than just sing although i love the way she everybody should listen she does a rendition of trouble man the marvin gay's song which was produced by bill laswell believe it or not who uh, produced some of boosie's albums so yeah. she uh um, she's very diverse but uh, i love that uh, record if you ever get a chance listen to trouble man by susan day and 
Wonderful um, abstraction with with Middle Eastern uh, Middle Eastern instruments and, and music. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's 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 wonderful. Uh, David Liebert's memoir is Rock and Roll Warrior. Thank you, brother. This is wonderful. Well, thanks, Bill. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about a lot of things that uh, um, usually don't come up in uh, some of the interviews I'm doing. Uh, so I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Oh, very, very nice. Yeah, you, you did a wonderful job on the book. And uh, so I, I'll, I'll post this with music to round this conversation out. Um, but I'll post parts of this conversation uh, for our friends at the, uh, the Chicago Writers Association. Uh, because I think not only did you write a great book, but you told a great story. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. I really appreciate it. That means a lot to me. thank my guest david liebert for a great conversation check out his book rock and roll warrior available at amazon.com i will post a link in the notes below and thanks to all of you for listening and don't forget to hit the subscribe button for updates on future programs and guests for playtime i'm your host wc turk